0: All right. Turn with me again, if you will, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter ten. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first two points of this chapter, and Lord willing, today we will
1: we will finish it. Thank you. Just want to thank Jesse
0: for the Bible study this morning. Um, there can be no higher meditation for our minds. To think about who God is, his character and his nature. It reminded me as we open our Bibles to the Book of Revelation. Remember when we started this, and this is now, I think, the 40th message from the book of Revelation. We're we're knee-deep in it now.
1: Um,
0: yes. We started out and we talked about the fact that our study in the book of Revelation was not to get us to a point of understanding when the Lord will return. But the book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's to help us understand him and who he is and his character and his nature. I was thinking about this morning as we studied um, chapter two, paragraph one in the confession. So two weeks ago, we looked at the first two points, as we mentioned, Point number one, verses one and two of our study, I'll I'll do just a quick review. The angel in the little scroll in verse one, John says, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun, his legs like pillars of fire. It takes us back to chapter five when we saw the first mention of the mighty angel in Revelation chapter five. John says, and this is in the throne room in the presence of God. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written and on the back sealed with seven seals. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And we talked about the fact that there is much debate over whether or not this is a new or different scroll. And as I've said several times in our study, the book of Revelation gives us different snapshots of the same thing so that we can better understand them. This is not some new revelation, if you will, in the form of a different scroll, but just an elaboration on what we studied in Revelation chapter five. You look at the description of the mighty angel. The scripture says he had a rainbow over his head. This is covenant imagery. The rainbow shows us where this mighty angel comes from because we had looked in Revelation chapter 4 when John is brought up into the throne room. One of the descriptions, and there's really no description of the one who is seated on the throne because how do you describe him? How do you describe the undescribable? But it said in Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, and he who sat on sat there, had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Ezekiel 1 also shares this imagery, but the picture of the rainbow around the throne is to give us a reminder that God is a covenant-keeping God. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. The description of this mighty angel continues. His face was Bless you. His face was like the sun, Revelation one sixteen. In the right hand, he, Jesus, held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. Picture of the fact that this is a representative, a powerful representative of the Lord. And there is a picture of Christ's likeness here. His legs, like the pillars of fire, hearkening. Back to the imagery that we find in the Old Testament as the the angel of the Lord led the children of Israel from camp to camp with the pillars of fire, if you will, the cloud by, by day and the pillar of fire by night. The mighty angel here pictured is to remind us of God's covenant faithfulness and his providential care. As we studied last time. Through the Old Testament, we looked at the angel of the Lord and what his purpose was. When God revealed himself through his mighty angel throughout Scripture, not just the Old Testament, by the way, but into the New Testament as well. God is ministering to his saints and reminding his saints that they are not forgotten. We looked at an an example of that last week in our study uh, regarding Elijah. Elijah is out in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness and without sustenance. Reminder that we are absolutely dependent on God. We talked about that this morning. And what does the Lord do? He sends an angel um, with a full menu to feed Elijah. But this angel is also sent to commission a prophet. We see this repeated throughout the Old Testament with the angel at the burning bush. The uh, angel of the Lord commissioning Gideon in Judges chapter 6. The angel of the Lord commissioning Elijah in Second Kings 1. The angel of the Lord commissions Gad to go speak to David about numbering the people in 1 Chronicles 21. And in Judges 13, we see Samson's parents commissioned to bring up Samson according to the direction of the Lord. Verse two in our, in our chapter, he has a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And it brings up a, a logical question. What is the little scroll? And we've made the, the repeated argument that this is a picture of Revelation chapter five. And it mirrors that scene there when we're introduced to the scroll that no one was worthy to
1: open except one, the Lamb.
0: In the picture in Revelation 5, the lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah, was the only one worthy to open the scroll. Why is, why is the lamb pictured there in regard to accessing the throne because it, or, or accessing the scroll? Because it tells us the nature and the contents of the scroll. The scroll is about the Lord Jesus and his redemptive plan.
1: The plan of the triune Godhead. The scroll in Revelation chapter 10 is now opened.
0: John makes a point to tell us that. And this is a small, a small scroll or a little book in the Greek. In Revelation five, we have the Greek word biblion, which is book. In chapter 10, we have a pic, uh, the word biblia riddion which is little book and it's a reminder that there is a portion of the redemptive message to be passed on to John and we'll see it's not just John that it's being passed on it's being passed on to the church secondly we looked at the seven thunders in verses 3 through 4 john says he called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion this is the mighty angel and when he called out the seven thunders sounded And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Numerical symbology here. We see the repeated pattern with the seven seals. As we get to the seven seal, what do we find? It is the end of days. It is the last time, the last judgment, if you will. When we get to um, the seven trumpets, trumpet seven is going to signify what? The last day, the same with the seven bowls. And so the picture of seven here is a pic- picture of perfection or completion. The seven thunders are a picture of the completed decrees of God carried out. His glory on display, as divine direction is issued from the throne. And as John hears the seven thunders uttered, he's told not to disclose the contents of what he heard. It's a reminder that some things are not our business. The secret things, Jesse read that verse this morning, the secret things belong to the Lord. But he has given us much to
1: know. And it's enough. That brings us to point number three
0: this morning, the promise. Verse five. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. We see this statement for the third time in this chapter. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land. You remember what that
1: pictures for us.
0: The sovereignty, the power, if you will, the authority that this mighty angel has over creation. Sovereignty of God is again restated here. The earth and the earth dwellers, the sea, the land, all of creation is subject to the sovereign hand of God's judgment. And this deals predominantly this morning as we look at what the angel is disclosing to John. It is dealing with the judgment of the wicked, the unbelieving. And he does something very interesting here. As the angel stands on the sea and on the land, he raises his right hand to heaven. What do we make of that? Well, as we have repeatedly done in our study in the book of Revelation, it takes us back to the Old Testament. Turn with me in your Bibles
1: to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy
0: 32 Jesse marveled at the life of Moses. What we don't talk about very often is that Moses, in his role as a prophet of Israel, prophesied concerning. The last day, the last time. And we see this in Revelation, or excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 32. As we look at that, I want you to think about the significance of the raising of the right hand. Moses is here prophesying of God's judgment. And he says in verse 34 Is not this, that is the judgment of God, laid up in store with me, sealed up? In my treasuries. Now, this is apocalyptic language that is immediately revealed to us here. Moses talks about the fact as he's speaking on behalf of God, as a prophet of God, that the judgment of God is sealed up in his treasuries. Why is the judgment of God sealed up in his treasury? Look at verse 35 Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. Look at verse 36. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. Now I'm just going to read this, and then we have one other passage, and we'll comment on this. Verse 37, then he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them raise up and help you. He's mocking the idols of the unbelieving. He says, let them be your protection. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. Listen to this: for I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword, and my hand takes hold on judgment. I will take vengeance on my adversaries, and I will repay those who hate me. And I will make my arrows drunk with blood. And my sword shall devour flesh and with the blood of the swain, slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. So Revelation 10 is taking us right back to Deuteronomy in Mo, Moses' prophecy. Go to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12 at, in verse 1. Same, the same picture we will see here. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro. Knowledge shall increase. Verse 5 of Daniel 12. And I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others stood. One on the bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, where is the man clothed in linen here? Who was above the waters of the stream? Very similar picture to what we have in Revelation 10. He said, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. This is Michael, the angel. Look at what he does. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times and half a time. And and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things should be finished. Did you catch that? Daniel continues, but I heard and I did not understand Daniel, we're all there with you. Then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Look at verse 10. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. These are the wise. by the way. In the context of the second coming of the Lord, there's going, going to be two responses. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. Now, how do we do that? How are we made white and refined?
1: Through
0: Through the blood of Christ. But Daniel says, or Michael tells Daniel, the wicked shall act wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination That makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1290 days. Now we're this close to Revelation chapter 12, which is exactly the comparison chapter here regarding the 1290 days. We'll get to that. But let me just say this that period of time that Daniel is talking about, as I study this, I am fully convinced that this is at the time of the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection between then and his return. That is this period of time, this short period of time that we'll look at in Revelation 12. But he says, blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days, but go your way till the end and you shall rest and and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Daniel rests because at the end of time, when the Lord returns, you'll be standing in your place. And you will witness these things. So I want you to see a couple of things here. There's repeated statements from both Moses and Daniel that God's people will be shattered and made powerless. Say, well, that's that doesn't sound very exciting. The word shattered, by the way. In Daniel, chapter 12 and verse seven, when Daniel, Michael, the archangel, tells Daniel, When he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And then when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things should be finished. The word shattering there means to scatter, disperse, pulverize, beat into pieces. We'll talk about next week who the holy people are, but by now you should know. When the beating of the holy people is complete, then the end will be. What did Moses say In, in Deuteronomy 32, 36? For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and that there is none remaining. Talking about the same thing. And we're going to see it in Daniel chapter 11 up close and personal. I also want to point out the fact that there's an emphasis on the basis of God's judgment. God is going to recompense judgment on those who persecute and afflict his servants. What we're talking about here is we talk about the promise or the oath that is given by this mighty angel. And it's mirrored for us in Daniel chapter 12 is Michael the archangel promising Daniel Just as we see in in Revelation chapter 10, that at the conclusion of the beating of God's people,
1: he will come and he will bring justice
0: on behalf of the people of God. Both passages, by the way, bring the imagery of the right hand being raised and making a promise. So what is the significance of that? God is making his people a promise. Remember, the book of Revelation is written to the seven churches for what?
1: It's a blessing. The Seven churches are already
0: being persecuted. They are already embattled. And this is a reminder to them that they are to be encouraged. Revelation is a book of blessing to the church. In Matthew chapter 26, when we think about the imagery of the right hand being raised to heaven, Jesus said this to him. He said, Matthew 26, excuse me, verse 64 You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated where? At the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of
1: heaven. In Romans chapter 8, Paul
0: reminds us of where Jesus is after his resurrection. He says, who is there to condemn, meaning the saints? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised. Who is at where? The right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. By the way, when it talks about Jesus being at the right hand of God, what is he doing? He's interceding. He has the power, think about this. Jesus has the power to intercede for his people. We're not talking about a human priest. We're not talking about Aaron. We're not talking about any human who would elevate himself into the position of the priesthood and say I can intercede for you. No you can't. You don't have the power. The picture here is Jesus at the 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 right hand of God has Power to intercede for his people. I shared a quote with you this week from Louis Burkhoff, who is a, a Dutch-American reformed theologian. And he said this, he said, it is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us. Do you doubt this morning, by the way, that the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ lacks power or has power? Do you think his prayer... The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Who is that describing? The prayer of Christ is effectual. He said it is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us, even when we are negligent in our prayer life. That doesn't describe any of us here this morning. He continues that he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs. Which were not present to our minds in which we often neglect to include in our prayers. Why? Because what do we normally include in our prayers? Lord, my hip.
1: This hurts. Or, Lord, this bill is due. How
0: am I going to pay this this month? Or we need new tires for the family van. What What do we... And, and listen, the scripture is not telling us that we should not bring all of our needs before him. But in in bringing those things that we see to the throne of grace, what do we often neglect? The weightier needs, which is our what? Our spiritual needs. Burkhoff continues, he says, those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we, we often neglect to include in our prayers, and that he prays for our protection, against the dangers of which we are not even conscious. The sheep in the sheepfold, do they see the wolf that is lurking at the perimeter, that is hiding, waiting to pounce? He prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious, and against the enemies which threaten us, though we, though we do not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease. You say, well, I've been a Christian for this many years, and I, I have not walked away from the faith. Why? because you're so good, you're so powerful? No. You remember what Jesus told Peter? Peter, I have prayed for you. Satan desires to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. The saints of God will be victorious in the end, and it will be because of the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ, not because of our greatness. So what have we seen as we study through the book of Revelation regarding the right hand? This is not new terminology for us. Revelation 1.16, in his right hand, he held the seven stars. What was the picture of the seven stars? Seven elders the seven pastors to the seven churches. God holds his men, his people in his right hand of power. Revelation 117, John, in response to the vision of Christ in Revelation 1, falls at the feet of Jesus as though dead. And what does Jesus do? He lays his right hand on John and says, fear not. Revelation 1.20. he says, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, Jesus, as he's writing to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2.1, he says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. You see the the reoccurring theme here? What does the Lord want us to see with this?
1: His right hand of power is upholding
0: his church. Revelation 5.1, we're back in the throne room. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. The scroll is a picture of redemptive history, and it's in the right hand of God as he's seated on the throne. What is that telling us? He is not lacking the power to carry out his redemptive plan and to bring his church into perfect union with him in his presence. Talked about being in the presence of God, how Moses was hid in the cleft of the rock. He could not see God in his fullness because he would have what? He would have died. Moses was, as God had set him apart and sanctified him, he was still sinful. Yet in his unglorified state, had he looked on the face of God, what would have happened to him? He would have died. All of redemptive history is God preparing you and me to be in his presence so that we can look him in the face and not die. That is what redemptive history is all about. He is making us ready to be in his presence and enjoy him forever. So why the repeated picture of the right hand of God? Well, let me ask you this. What good is the sovereign decree of God if he is not almighty to bring it to pass?
1: What good is it?
0: If God says, I'm going to redeem a people for myself, he doesn't say I'd like to. Oh, I wish I could. That would be arrogance, wouldn't it? To say that you can do something that you can't do. Mark, stealing a little bit of your thunder from James chapter 4. James 4.13 says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And yet you do not know that what what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. For us to say, I am going to bring this to pass because I will it, is the height of arrogance. It is elevating my pride Before the throne of God. Why? Because I'm not God. But guess what? He is not God if he cannot bring to pass what he is eternally decreed. He's not God. So either he is or he is not. And the picture in Revelation 10 here is that he does what
1: he says he will do. We spent
0: time this morning comparing ourselves in relation to the description of God. We are completely dependent on him. He is wholly independent. But listen to what God says regarding his purposes in Isaiah 46. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, Listen, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Is God asking for help here from anybody? My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. He's sovereign. He says, Calling a bird of prey from the east and a man of my counsel from a far country, he's using an unclean bird and an unclean man to accomplish his sovereign purpose. That's what that statement is right there. Mm -hmm. I will use everything at my disposal to accomplish my purpose because what? I am sovereign. He says, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness, bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and listen, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. The point of the promise that we see in Revelation chapter 10, verse five and verse six is that there is nothing outside of the eternal decree of God that will delay him from coming back to rescue his people. Now, you may find that to be a point of encouragement or not. I I find it immensely encouraging. Look at verse six. And swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there should be no more delay. This is, again, a reference to the how long question that we looked at in Revelation chapter 6. As the saints wrestle with the suffering that we are called to do in Revelation 6, verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer, just like Daniel, by the way. Listen to this. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Do you see anything in that statement to the saints that they're told to rest a little while so that I can can hope to work out my plan of redemption?
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Let me figure this out. Oh, he has already decreed who of their fellow servants and brothers would be
1: killed as they themselves had been. Remember
0: what we read in Deuteronomy and Revelation 12. I want you to see also what is over the angel's head as he makes his promise. We talked about the rainbow that we see in Revelation 4, 3 that surrounds the throne. Month of June, our wicked culture will
1: wave a rainbow flag. And they will tell you that it's in pride. But but know this, there
0: is no hijacking. Of the image of the rainbow that can undo the covenant keeping of Almighty God. It is not a mistake that the symbolism of the rainbow is hijacked. Cam and I were talking about this on our long ride yesterday. This past week in the news, and I got to stop listening to the news, but this last week in the news, um, the new release of Brides Magazine was put out. Now, some of you younger ladies as you prepare
1: for your weddings and think about Julie's like, no,
0: I don't need no bride magazine.
1: Good Julie. Good girl.
0: But Brides Bride's magazine has historically been that catalog of ideas for young ladies as they prepare for the most of important of days. And on the cover this week is a dude fully bearded in a wedding dress. It is. And and here's why. Before Genesis chapter three, after Adam and Eve sinned and God said, the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. The gospels clearly proclaimed in Genesis three. Is it not? We all agree that that is a prophetic picture of the coming savior. Before Genesis 3, in the sin of Adam and Eve, we find God instituted what? The covenant of marriage. That was even before the statement in Genesis 3. Marriage is a creation ordinance. Why? Because in the picture of the husband loving his wife and giving himself for her is a picture of the gospel. God is a covenant God, and you know what? He wants us to be covenant people. Marriage is a covenant. Is it any wonder why marriage is attacked? Think about this. You don't need to be in marriage to exercise sexual perversion. That's not what this is about. What this is about is attacking the covenant of marriage. It is a picture of the gospel. It is a picture of the covenant keeping God. And so we have the rainbow. When we think of the rainbow in scripture, what does it remind us of? God made a promise. And by the way, God, when he made that promise, did not say, I'm never going to judge this world again for wickedness. We make that mistake to think that When God judged this world and deluged it with a flood, that he was done judging this world. That's not what he said. He said, I will never again flood the world. But the next judgment will be what? By fire. God was promising then
1: that he was going to judge this world. And how we've diminished that. We're tried to by...
0: Hijacking the rainbow, as you see that everywhere next month or month of June, remind, be reminded of that.
1: God will not be mocked. Mm-hmm.
0: But, but look at the words of this mighty angel. He swore by him. Mm-hmm. You ever made a promise?
1: And broken it. I think we all have. Why? Well, things happen, right?
0: If you make a promise and you can't carry it out, well, this happened or that happened. Well, what we're really saying is we're impotent to keep our words because we don't have any power. That's why scripture warns us to be very careful about what we promise. But notice this angel raises his right hand, and the scripture says he swore by him. These are amazingly beautiful words. The definition here to swear means to take an oath, to make a promise. The image here is that of a covenant keeping God moving on behalf of his people. Why? Because he promised to do so. Hebrews 6, 13. And I love the picture of the covenant. Hebrews 6, 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, covenant to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, who did he promise by? Himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than than themselves. Why? You ever heard somebody say, I swear on my mother's grave? People swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, what? He guaranteed it with an oath.
1: By the way, just pause there for a second. How do you know? That you are going to make it to heaven. You know what what Paul tells us in Ephesians 1?
0: The guarantee, the down payment of his promise to you is what? The Holy Spirit indwelling you.
1: How do I know that God is going to keep his promise? He's given me his
0: spirit. He said he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Praise the Lord for that. It's impossible for him to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Listen to verse 19. We have this, that is his promise, his word, his guarantee, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You know why I love covenant theology? And I don't run around calling myself a Calvinist. I don't talk about this a whole lot, but this dawned on me as I'm thinking about this. Why don't I run around calling myself Calvinist? Well, let the record show, I wholeheartedly and unashamedly agree with Calvin's theology. I do fully agree with it. But Calvin's theology was Augustine's theology. Augustine's theology was Paul's theology. Paul's theology is God's theology, all of which is covenant theology. Calvin, Augustine, the reformers, and Paul never made a promise to Danny you. (laughs) never have they done it. You know who has made a promise to me? The covenant-keeping God of all the universe, the creator of everything. He's made a promise to me. All of these men, Abraham, Isaac, Noah, Moses, Jacob, Calvin, Augustine, the reformers, Paul, the apostles, are all the recipients. You if you are a child of God, are all recipients of the covenant. You didn't have a hand in it. You are not keeping the covenant for God. He is keeping it because he is a promise-keeping God. That is why I love covenant theology, because it is all about a God who keeps his promises. And it is an anchor to our soul. Some of the most encouraging theology, read Ephesians chapter one, most encouraging theology. Paul takes us right into the deep end of the pool, and he does it to hook us up to the anchor so that we will be steadfast and unmovable, knowing that my salvation does not rest in my performance, because if it did, I'd lose it in an hour, maybe a minute, maybe a second. Because I can't keep the covenant. I can't. So, what is the confirming promise or oath here that we see? It is a promise that is based on the character, the integrity. He is a pure spirit. The character, the integrity, the power of the Almighty Creator God. He will not delay his return and the execution of his judgment on behalf of the Lamb and of the saints. That is his promise. And he's encouraging you. He's encouraging me. He's encouraging the church who is about to be and always has been since his return. The target. Persecution and tribulation. You need not sugarcoat this. There are people who will say the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will be raptured out. They're lying to you. It's not here. It's not here, guys. It's not I would be a liar if I stood in this pulpit and told you the more I study, the more I'm convinced of God's word, that I walk away with a conclusion that somehow I get the easy way out. Revelation chapter 11 is going to remind us we don't get the easy way out. We don't. And how nice that would be. But we don't get to go to glory in a lazy boy. We don't. All things are working according to his prescribed time. He promises it. There are no surprises. Satan is not going to come up with a better strategy to somehow thwart the purposes of God. Not going to happen. God is reminding us that he is sovereign. He is making a promise that at his appointed time, and notice the language that he uses in Revelation chapter 9. We looked at this a few weeks ago. So the four angels, verse 15, who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Do you you hear the specificity in that? They were released at God's appointed time. It's easy for us to get worked up by the mockers and the scorners, however, isn't it? But guess what? They
1: don't know our God. They don't. Peter
0: reminds us in 2 Peter chapter 3, writing to the church who is dealing with scoffers. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of a reminder. We need to be reminded of this, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and the Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following, following their own sinful desires. And what will they say? They will say, where is the promise of His coming? They don't know that God is a covenant-keeping God who will not break his word. They don't know. They think God is holy like them. They're liars. Where is he? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Paul or Peter says they deliberately overlook this fact. There's sin in their overlooking. This is not just ignorance. This is willful ignorance. He says they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But look at this. Verse seven. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are what? Stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. We can make light of God's coming judgment till the cows come home. And guess what? It's not going to stop God. We can mock, we can scoff, we can make fun of it, we can steal the symbol of it, put it on a flag and parade it down the street, and it's not going to stop and forward the plan of the almighty God to come back and judge this world. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Listen to this the lord is patient towards you why is he holding back the just judgment on this world that the world deserves why he says he's patient towards you not willing that any should perish who is he talking about beloved peter's writing to the beloved god's not talking out of both sides of his mouth there are those who would read this passage and say, well, God doesn't want any to perish. If that's true, why is he coming back in fiery judgment? He's talking about his elect, the saints, those who are yet to be converted. God is holding back his judgment on this world until all of his people have been brought to him. till the bride of Christ is complete. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief when the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And then Peter gets to the heart of the matter. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? You see, the prophecy of scripture requires of us an ethical response. Either we believe this or we don't, and our lives will, will, will answer that question, won't they? Do we believe that the Lord is coming back and that his return is imminent? And do we believe that when he comes back, he is going to judge this world, this world that is groaning since the fall of humanity in the garden, that is cursed by sin, he is going to burn it with fire and make all things new. We either believe that or we don't scoffers will mock and Mark you pointed this out this morning what is going to be the focus of their mocking God's word which is what God's promise they attack it in many different ways but they they target the person and the work of the Lord okay. Jesus Christ he's not really God mm. that makes God a liar the Bible's not to be taken literally
1: It's full of moral lessons for us.
0: Unhitch yourself from the old. They'll mock his word. And you know what? It changes nothing. Nothing. I I shared an article this week I thought was humorous. The case for making Earth Day a religious holiday. And there was a quote in it that kind of stuck out at me. It says, lastly, um, this is two environmentalists who uh, are urging us to worship at their altar, And and they say this, lastly, we might just need a book. What if a book like that existed for the earth? What if it were replete with hymns of this world of the living? What if it contained the stories of the prophets of natural earth knowledge, like Darwin and Carson, Galileo and Humboldt? What if we came to mark those discoveries as a gradual opening of the consciousness to the laws of nature? What if our Bible of the natural world reinforced that a multiplicity of processes and phenomena still remain to be discovered? In other words, we can't know the truth. No, you are suppressing it. What if we use that book not to scold our children into following commandments? But rather to light a path forward that encourages discovery and reverence and gratitude for the relationship that are this planet, planetary spaceship's life
1: support. Doctrines of demons. This is my father's world. Amen. God
0: rest me
1: in the thought.
0: But they just might need a book. Why? Because they rejected God's book. Mm-hmm. Verse seven, and I must charge ahead. But in, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God should be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. We just looked at the servants of prophets, prophets, Moses, Daniel, Ezekiel, um, all examples of those who remind us and promise that God is coming back to rescue his elect and judge the ungodly.
1: So what is the mystery of God? What is the mystery of God? You say, well, I
0: I wish I knew about that. Let me tell you something. You do. If you study God's word and you're a saint, you're a child of God, you've been born again by the spirit of God, you have been brought into the mystery of God. Read Ephesians 3, verse 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us—I'm sorry, this is Ephesians 1, not 3—even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of your will. No. According to the purpose of whose will? His. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Thank you according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Listen, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Did you hear that? This is the scroll right here. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. What is his plan to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth? The mystery of his will is the uniting of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ to himself. It is the marriage supper of the lamb that scripture gives us the picture of as we get further into the book of Revelation. The seventh seal, the trumpet and the bowl are the end of all things, the fullness of time, the uniting of all things. God is right on time with his promises. Point four, briefly, we have a picture of bitter and sweet here. What does this mean? Verse eight, then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. The messenger of God, the mighty angel, passes this open scroll to who? John. This is the same picture as the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 2, and we don't have time to read it this morning. But Ezekiel is given a scroll front and back
1: and told to what? Eat it. See, that's kind of interesting language. Why, Why would the angel tell? Ezekiel and here John to eat the scroll. Well, how do I how do I reproduce
0: it or give it to someone else if I've eaten it? Well, let's think about this. This is simple language for us to understand. Now it's certainly symbolic, but Verse 9 says this I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. John is commanded to take and eat. There is a beautiful picture that we see this in when we come to the Lord's table. A very simple picture. Jesus said, Unless you eat my flesh, and drink my blood. You have no part in me. And you remember what the Pharisees said: "This man is crazy. What is he talking about?"
1: It's a picture. What is this
0: a picture of? When you take food, I was thinking about Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer for the king. What was his job? Anybody know? We think of taste testing. He had a very specific job and a reason for existing. What was it? There were people, enemies of the king, who wanted to kill the king. Well, it's hard to get into the king's presence. He's got armed guards. But what does the king need to do? He needs to eat. So if I
1: can slip a little something into the king's food,
0: maybe a little anti- antifreeze, a little bit as, as we go. What will happen? Well, we can kill the king and somebody else can claim the throne. We see all of that treachery happening happening as we study through the Old Testament. And what was Nehemiah's job? Well, he got the exhilarating role of every day, that adrenaline rush of taking a bite and a drink of something that could be his last meal and not even know it. What is this picture here? When we come to the Lord's table. We are doing something very simple. We are eating a cracker and drinking a
1: bit of juice. What is the picture there? The picture is very simply this I'm taking it for me. I am putting my full trust in what he has done.
0: It's a very, very simple picture. What is this going on with John here? The angel says, take and eat this, John. Well, John is commissioned to prophesy. Can a prophet prophesy about something that he himself does not believe? Verse 10, I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it in my stomach, eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. We have a picture of the bittersweet picture of the scroll, the redemption of God's people. It's a picture of the gospel. I want you to see this. And this, uh, this will come up in our men's Bible study. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross, listen to this, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? This almost sounds like the language of of Elijah when he's got the, the showdown with the prophets of Baal. Where are your great
1: ideas, O philosopher,
0: wise man of this age? Verse 20 is, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly. The King James Version uses the word foolishness. To please God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. With the preaching of the gospel, there is both blessing and cursing. For those who obey the gospel, we have the blessed promise of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of peace, at one if you will, with God. But for those who refuse to submit, there's a pronouncement of woe and judgment. And a lot of times we're, when we're sharing the gospel, we think, I failed. I was not able to convince someone to believe.
1: You don't understand. With the preaching of
0: the gospel, God promises that what? His word will not what? It will not return void. So when one of you little jars of clay share the gospel with someone and they reject it and they mock you and they laugh at God's word to say, that's foolishness. You didn't waste your time. You didn't. You think, well, I, I failed. I was not good enough at it. I wasn't able to be convincing like Moses. Lord, I'm I'm not eloquent. God doesn't call us to be eloquent. He calls us to tell the truth. And when when sinful humanity rejects the truth, it's not because we failed to be eloquent. The gospel is accomplishing two things in its preaching. It's accomplishing the saving, the gathering of the sheep my sheep hear my voice and what? They follow me. When you preach the gospel, there will be sheep that follow, but you will also scatter the wolves and make the wolves mad. It's accomplishing two things. It's a double-edged sword. It is bitter and sweet. We'll see this very clearly, by the way, when we get to chapter 11, because the world does not appreciate the witness of the church. and. <laughs> God has called us to be a witness for him. And it's not without cost. It is not without cost. That's what chapter 11 is about. Mm -hmm. But he tells John, John, you must prophesy. Notice verse 11. You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations, languages, and kings. And look at this. The word prophesy or the word about is the word epi in Greek. It means to or against. What is the angel telling John? John, you're not done prophesying, and your prophecy is going to be against nations and languages and kings. Notice what he said, against the preaching of the gospel for those who reject it is
1: prophesying against
0: them. We'll see hereafter in our study that kings, when we see them in scripture, are seen in a negative sense. They're aligned with the enemy. John was to prophesy the bitter news against the unrepentant
1: enemies of the land. That's what the angel's telling him. And as we
0: will see, this will be hard. There will be consequences, there will be suffering as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ suffers visible losses in being the faithful witnesses of the Lord Jesus. In Revelation 18.3, talking about kings, it says, For all the nations have drunk the wine of passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. A picture of kings in the book of Revelation are those powers that align themselves against the Lamb. And God says, John, and by extension, the church, as we will see in Revelation 11, that includes you and I, I have called you to be witnesses. One of the most profound truths that slapped me in the face this week as I'm studying this is that God has called the church to follow in his steps. What happened to him? He went unto his own and his own received him not. And they crucified him. They rejected him. And then what happened? The glory of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, where he is exalted over his enemies. And guess what? Church, God is going to take you and I down the same path. When Moses and Daniel talked about The enemy beating the holy ones into dust, into the ground. Wait till we get to Revelation chapter 11. God is taking his church in the same footsteps that he himself walked so that we can share in his glory. So what is the application or the blessing for us this morning? Well, I've said this repeatedly, but I'll say it again. rest. In the sovereignty of God. Rest in it. As Charles Spurgeon said, it is the pillow upon which the saints rest their heads at night. When you're dealing with whatever it is that you're dealing with, whatever struggle that you have, whatever challenge that God has placed in your life, it is not by accident. And know this, there will be no more delay When his patience is complete and he has rescued the last little lamb that belongs in his sheepfold, the end will be here. Secondly, his promise to us is sure. God has not only decreed it, but he will also do it. Why? Because he has the right hand power to bring it to pass. And then lastly, the prophetic promise of scripture, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, requires from us an ethical response. As Daniel said in Daniel chapter 12, there will be those who purify themselves in the blood of the Lamb, and there will be those who deepen their wickedness. Which are we? If you're confronted with the book of Revelation and God's word as we study it, and the Spirit of God is not challenging you to lay aside your sin, something's wrong.
1: Now, there are all sorts of sins that we deal with and contend
0: with. Some secret, some open. Table talk for the month of May deals with commonly tolerated sins in the church. You know what many of them deal with? Mark preached on it last week.
1: Right here. Because right here comes from right here. Mm
0: -hmm. Scripture for the saint, when we talk about purifying ourselves, it's dealing with our hearts. The Lord Jesus wants to deal with us right here. That is the source of our sin. We can clean up our act and look good on Sunday morning and fit right in. But if God has not changed our heart and dealt with the sin in our heart, we're, we're not clean. We can be ceremonial, ceremonially clean. We can have our feet washed. But if we're not clean on the inside, we're whited sepulchers. The next thing that we're asked to 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 deal with is our obedience. And I didn't read the passage in Ezekiel, but God told Ezekiel when he said, take and eat this. He said, Ezekiel, don't be rebellious like the people that you are taking this message to. Don't rebel. And the question that comes to us is, do we submit to the word of God ourselves? Do we?
1: I can't answer that for you,
0: but we have to ask ourselves that question: Am I submitted to God's Word? Now, we each have different levels of understanding as we mature in the faith and we grow. but as God reveals His truth to us, do we submit to it? I didn't say that we understand it, but do we submit to it?
1: as His word?
0: We looked at Peter, where Peter said, what sort of people ought you to be or we to be in light of these things? That is, there's the soon return of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that he is coming back and he will judge this world. What else matters? Think about our lives and all the things that we're pursuing, jobs, our, our retirement savings. When God parts those clouds and returns, none of that will matter. Not one thing will matter other than this. Where do I stand with the Lord Jesus? Nothing else matters. What sort of people ought we to be considering the Lord Jesus is coming back soon? Could be today. And what do we do with the word of God? Will we take and eat it ourselves? Because, beloved, we can't share it with anyone else if it doesn't mean anything to us. You want to know what will turn off the unbelieving quicker than anything is if our life does not align with the word of God. Why would I eat something that you won't eat yourself? You ever been to somebody's house and they feed you something and they sit there and they don't eat it themselves? You're like, why would I want to eat that? (laughs) If we don't believe the Bible ourselves, why would the world believe it? That's the picture of taking this and eating it. John is to take it in for himself. I can't share the gospel with anyone else if it doesn't mean anything to me.
1: What will we do with God's word? While the
0: world scoffs and mocks at it, what do we do with it? We obey it. We submit to it. We proclaim it. And then after that, the angel tells John to go. Go. Are we obedient to the direction of God?
1: Again, when we think of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ, what else matters? What will we do with his word? Will we be obedient to it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time in your word this morning. Lord, I know
0: it's been lengthy this morning and we ask, Father, that Our minds would absorb what what you're teaching us. And Father, that we would be obedient. That we would go and do what it is that you have led us to do. We would be submitted to your word, obedient to it. Father, I pray for those here this morning who have
1: not obeyed the gospel. Lord, there is nothing
0: that we can say or do to change that. We recognize that. For those of us that have been born again in the spirit of God, it has been accomplished by the right hand of power. Not our own, but yours. We ask, Father, that you would graciously apply your word this morning. I I think about our young people, our children. Father, we long to see them saved. We long to see their lives changed to be made new creations. That is not a work that we can accomplish. We ask that you would do it through the power of your word and that you would help us to be faithful parents, teachers, elders of this church. We would proclaim your word without apology. Give us the grace and the power to do it. And we ask these
1: things in your name. Amen.